All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 30 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. We've turned 30. I mean, not like age-wise, but, you know. Almost wise. there. Yeah, but... almost there chronologically. I'm here with uh, my my fellow brother-in-arms, Mike. How you doing, Mike? Interesting choice of words, as always. Yes. Um, I am doing fine. I just got back from this Mexican food restaurant. It was fine, but the surface was kind of, eh. It took too long to get us our drinks, then took too long to get us our order, and then took too long to get get us our bill. So, food was fine. Yeah, Service had, could be better. I had Mexican a few nights ago, a place called La Napolera. Um uh, I, I have no idea if it's anywhere else in the world, but it's here in Jacksonville. They have, like, fucking six locations. Um, it's really good. Um, Went to a place called the Margarita Factory. Any any restaurant with the name Factory in it, uh, I'm just kind of like, eh, turned off. Like, the Cheesecake Factory. Like, Man, I, they have fucking amazing cheesecake, though. Yeah, but they, like, try to do other shit there, too, like actual food. I know, and also, like, not serve police officers, so that's another problem, yeah. They don't serve police officers? There there, there was, like, a a scandal where, like, some cheesecake factory somewhere was not serving police officers for some reason. Huh. When I think of factory, I think of sludge and chains and oil (laughs) and, like, pneumatic devices and shit like that. Uh, Like, I'm not thinking about, like... You know, mm, delicious cheesecake, like no. like bistro. That brings thoughts of tastiness and bread and and, sa- and bistro like, to me brings thoughts of, thoughts of uh, pretentious hipsters. Whatever, it still brings the thoughts <laughs> of food to my mind. But when I think of yeah. factory, I think of like they're just pump- coffee shop. They're just pumping this out by the number. You know, <laughs> just pumping out cheesecakes. The spaghetti factory. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like there's no love going into these dishes. They're mass produced. Like McDonald's should be called the Burger Factory. You know. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that new McDonald's movie, The Founder, with Michael Keaton. That looks really good. Oh, I did not hear about that. Yeah, it's coming out on Friday. It came out in select theaters in December, and Michael Keaton plays uh, Roy Kroc, who is the original founder of Mm -hmm. McDonald's. Now, McDonald's doesn't really want you to know this, uh, but they tried to, they actually did try to make, get this film not released. They were like, no, please don't, because apparently Roy Kroc was not this kind benefactor, this amazing guy like McDonald's would like you to believe. McDonald's was actually a restaurant before the actual chain. It was this restaurant owned by these two brothers with the last name McDonald. And they had come up with a way to streamline uh, burger, you know, uh, burger, you know, manufacturing, you know, to make burgers. And uh, Roy Kroc, who was this, you know, shrewd businessman who was just having a hard time selling mixers and stuff like that door to door, he saw an opportunity and he ended up trying to try to create some sort of franchise deal with them. Things kind of got strained, and then he decided, you know what, I'm going to do the the dirty thing, and I'm going to buy the property around the area. And then he ended up actually building a McDonald's right next to the original McDonald's and put it out of business. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, he's a very shrewd businessman. I mean, but he also came up with stupid ideas. Like uh, he called it a burger because he was trying to find a diet burger. And his brilliant idea was to replace the patty with a slice of pineapple. Ew. Yeah. Yeah, anytime you, you become this big, successful conglomerate, you know, uh, like Disney and all that, like the heads of these places. Well, I heard Walt Disney was not n- n- the nicest guy either. I heard he was just a straight-up racist. <laughs> like, he just, he did not like... <laughs> well, that explains Song of the South. <laughs> I mean, he did not oh, like yeah. him, he did not like him some blacks, and he did not like him some, especially did not like him some Jews. Um, and also is very particular in who he would allow in his park. For the longest time, and, and also for the longest time for employees, they couldn't have long hair or beards or anything like that. Yeah, well, we got to keep the goddamn hippies out of my park. <laughs> Damn draft dodgers, cut your hair. So so uh, Walt Disney is Hank Hill? Okay. <laughs> uh, tell you what. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, um, so anyway, welcome to the uh, podcast, everybody. This is our typical bullshit talk before we actually get to the segments that you guys all love so very much. Or actually, the consensus is you think it's okay, uh, which is fine by me because I can live with okay. Um, if you like us, you can like us on Facebook. Uh, it's facebook.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Or if you want to Donate to us on Patreon. You can do that as well. It's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. You get some bonus content on there. It's worth at least checking out the page to see what kind of perks are available. And I did notice after our last uh, episode, and I'm glad you guys are still with us, uh, after the last episode at um, Kentucky uh, Militia Shooter, um, we kind of got into gun control a little bit, talking about gun stuff, yeah. and um, I noticed we lost a donor on Patreon the next day. <laughs> Was it a big donor or was it, you know? It doesn't matter, Mike. All the donors. It doesn't matter. All the donors donors matter. All of them matter. Um, But really, we kind of expected that. I mean, you kind of walk into a hornet's nest when you deal with subjects like that. Um, I I was actually – there were some things somebody corrected me on, and I actually did acknowledge that on our group. And I made some mistakes, like, oh, you know, illegal to own a certain amount of ammunition. I did not know. Now I know. I know sometimes I might sound like I know it all and I know everything. I don't. I just talk about what I know. I can't really discuss things off the top of my head based on things that I don't know. So if I don't know and people call me out on it and let me know... Uh, I, I'm definitely more than willing to say I was wrong, and I'm definitely wrong there. See, that's so. the, that's the rub when putting out content on the internet is people, normal people who don't do anything online or they don't put themselves out there, they can go through life every single day being wrong all the time, but we only have to be wrong once for people to uh, jump on us about something. Like for me, I when I did on my YouTube channel, I did a food a video where I was taste testing German food, and just as a little joke, there's a little sketch where I or a little bit in the video where I show an up close um, picture of this German chocolate bar that's got this the most Aryan looking boy on there I've ever seen, and I play the German national anthem. 
and you think, you know, and I, and there was no Nazi symbolism or anything like that. I was just saying, man, this kid looks so damn Aryan. And I didn't know this until after I released the video, but apparently in Germany, it's very offensive to play their national anthem uh, from the very beginning of the song to play the f the first two stanzas. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing that you would not really know if you're not German. So yeah, so the the country officially recognizes only the third stanza of the song as their national anthem because the first stanza talks about from this river to this river, Germany, Germany, Germany. You know, but apparently those rivers are like inaccurate borders. And Germany didn't even occupy those areas. And then, like, the second stanza... I wonder why they didn't edit that, then. Who knows? It was a long time ago. People, you know, were just like, well, fuck it. I've never seen that river, and we don't have a map or GPS. <laughs> so I'm assuming that that's correct. And then the second stanza is talking about our wine, our women, our song, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And apparently people see that as uh, misogynistic, talking about, like, you know, their women and uh, objectifying, whatever. And then... Even even more so. I, I don't know why that would be objectifying, but okay. I but guess hey. they're talking about women like they're objects or something. I don't I don't know. I mean, there, you could derive so many. I mean, there's so many people out. In yeah, in today's day and age, you can make anything politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you know, um, th then there's the third group of people who uh, who want to yell Nazi at every single thing that's affiliated with Germany. So there's people saying, well, it was around during World War Two, and you know, blah blah blah. So yeah, so yeah, I mean, you know. You don't know what you don't know. There was no possible way for me as an American to know that that was um, in bad I mean, taste. I probably could have known about the the weapons stuff, but I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the point of this podcast is to talk about the case. It's not to talk about gun control laws. If I was going to go or gun laws in general, if that was what it was about, I would have done a lot of research. Yeah, I, I kind of steered it in that direction. My bad. Um, okay, so anyway, we got all that shit out of the way. Um, there's a couple cases that uh, are, uh, there's one Unsolved Mysteries related, and there's another one that isn't, we thought might be, you know, worth just mentioning real quick. The first one is about uh, D.B. Cooper, right? There's like a little yeah. sort of break in the case, which is interesting, because I remember last time we said it's officially closed, and now we're like, oh, no, wait. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah, so there's this article talking about scientists say that they may have new evidence in D.B. Cooper case. I swear to God, if this news article... Okay. Don't you love how you just can't go to an internet article anymore without a that fucking adds. video popping yeah. up at the very top that just tells you everything the article's gonna say like where and then it automatically plays yeah. and you have to press pause or mute yeah, yeah. and then, then the volume's like always fucking way louder than anything else in the world it's like you know the jump scare yeah exactly jump scare dudes but it's like it's like guys are you trying to dumb us down as a people like let's not have them read it let's just tell them everything they need to know in a video at the very top and you know for those losers out there who actually know how to read uh they can they can read the article well that's why journalism is dying that's why i don't have a lot of you know actual you know newspapers you know uh you know newspapers are dying off uh you know magazines are dying off and journalism in general is dying off and it's all basically being a lot of internet stuff people are technically blogging blogging on major you know news sites yeah, there's a lot more opinion being thrown in sh shit now than actual facts, I've noticed. Um, 
Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so this this article is talking about um, how a band of amateur scientists selected by the FBI to look for clues in the world's most infamous skyjacking may have found new evidence in the 45-year-old case. Good Lord, 45-year-old case. Yep. Jesus. Time's going by, passing me by. Um, they're asking the public's help because of potential leads that can link the hijacker nose D.B. Cooper to the Puget Sound aerospace industry in the early 1970s. The scientific mm. team has been analyzing particles removed from the clip-on tie left behind by Cooper after he hijacked a Northwest Orient passenger jet in November 1971. A powerful electron microscope found more than 100,000 particles on the old J.C. Penny tie, including cerium, strontonium sulfide and pure titanium. Oh, they just bombarded me with all them scientific words. I didn't know that was coming. I would have been more nervous reading that had I seen those <laughs> words coming up. Um, quote, uh, these are what they call rare earth elements. They're used in very narrow fields for very specific things, end quote, said Tom Kay, lead researcher for the group that calls itself Citizen Sleuths. Uh, Kay said the elements were rarely used in 71 during the time of Cooper's daring leap with a parachute from the passenger jet. One place they were being used was for Boeing's high-tech supersonic transport plane, which was being developed with government funding from the 1960s and 70s. Kay wonders if Cooper could have been a Boeing employee or a contractor who wore the tie to work. A classy guy, clip-on tie. Um... The tie, uh, quote, the tie went with him into these manufacturing environments for sure, so he was not one of the people running these manufacturing machines. He was either an engineer or a manager in one of the plants, Kay said. Uh, Kay says Boeing was developing cutting-edge monitors like radar screens that use some of the elements found on the tie. Kay says the public's help is, in de is needed, particularly from old-timers with experience in the aerospace industry in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the scientists would like to hear theories from the public on what those materials could have been used for. They hope the information can help build a profile for Cooper. Uh, quote, someone may have been able to look at those particles and say, Oh my gosh, I know what that means. Having those particles on the tie, end quote. Tipsters can reach this group through the contact tab on the Citizen Sleep uh, website. Blah, da, da, blah, da, da, blah, da, da. To be honest, it sounds like clickbait or something that this company, this Citizen Salutes group is like, oh, man, we need to get our name out there. We need people to, you know, actually give us more cases to work on or, or make it so what we're doing isn't completely pointless. Oh, we have a new break in this D.B. Cooper case. It, it doesn't seem like it's going to identify who the guy is. It just says, oh, well, it might show where the guy might have worked. Yeah. If anybody is still alive or remembers. <laughs> I mean, with, with modern-day forensics, though, they can kind of go back and relook at some of these cases and, and use stuff like that to... I mean, Yeah, but it seems rather circumstantial to me. I mean... Just to me, personally. It, it would be circumstantial if they said that they knew someone who had these elements on their tie, but they didn't actually have the tie. That would be a circum... That would yeah, be but, but it also just sounds kind of... I don't know. It just doesn't seem like this is a smoking gun. It's not that a really that, juicy piece of info. Yeah. They're um, not looking. This is not the smoking gun that D.B. Cooper case enthusiasts or uh, people who are working on the case were looking for for 45 years. This is like, oh, well, there's some traces and some stuff on the tie. OK, cool. All right. What else? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Not, not super juicy, but 
I don't know. It it's was... interesting. It's interesting. It's definitely worth talking about. But I can see why the government would still be like, no, the case is still closed. We're not opening the case up for, oh, traces of some substance on a tie. We don't even know exactly where it could. I get, it, it's theorized, oh, it could have been come from someplace that this guy was working in at Boeing or whatever. Or maybe it's a conspiracy thing. Maybe, oh, well, he was working for Boeing and then they want to cover things up. I don't know. And it's and it's all somehow amounting to Trump's presidency being delegitimized. <laughs> and Trump's going to send an angry tweet out to these people. All his his campaign was funded by the DB Cooper money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how that, his da- Trump's dad was actually DB Cooper, and that's how he got the funds to start his business. <laughs> you know, we uh, should talk. We should talk shit about Donald Trump on the podcast, just so he'll like mean tweet us, so it'll get our name out more. <laughs> Uh, but i'm not going to get into politics because you know that 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 is that everything opening up pandora's box yeah and not not the good pandora website where you can listen to music on either um yeah everything i find that ironic that that website is called pandora it's like do you know what that represents that doesn't represent oh opening up a box and it's awesome music no, it was opening up a box and unleashing everything horrible upon this world. <laughs> well, honestly, I found that like anytime I put in an artist I like, the the other stuff they suggest for me, I, I nine times out of ten, I'm like this this shit sounds nothing like the artist that I put in that I because you know Pandora is supposed to be like, oh, you typed in Smashing Pumpkins, so here's a bunch of other bands that sound like Smashing Pumpkins, and so I type in Smashing Pumpkins. And it gives me a Smashing Pumpkins song that they play on the radio all the time. And so, so I, maybe it is like Pandora's box for music. It's yeah, just all so these I, shitty yeah, bands. I that, skip it, and then it plays like Bush. And then it plays like, um, you know, some other, like Nirvana. And I'm like, dude, Nirvana. Even Bush, I can't even. I, I mean, I've only heard one song of theirs from the American World from Paris soundtrack, Mouth. And that doesn't sound like Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, I mean, they're so not a I bad band, but they don't sound like Smashing no. Pumpkins at all. He's a Nirvana. That's a real stretch. Yeah. But anyway, uh, there's another case that you wanted to talk about. It's one about some UFO footage. Yeah, this from... was sent to us. Um, I think it was by one of your subs, actually. It might be Eddie or someone like that. I don't know. Someone sent us. Someone sent us this um, article, and I thought it was pretty interesting. It was off the uh, Coast to Coast AM dot com website, which I mean, God, I love that radio show. Um, I, I especially loved it when Art Bell was hosting it. I would love to get Art Bell on this show. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes the the show has a lot of legitimate stuff. Other times it's kind of questionable. But oh yeah, absolutely. But I mean, just the fact that it exists at all on radio on terrestrial radio, I think is yeah. pretty amazing. This is pretty cool. Even though they don't play it until like one o'clock at night. But yeah, hey, see, I'm, up. <laughs> I'm up. I'm up. I hear it. I remember listening to bits of it on the radio when I was riding with my dad while he while he was driving truck late at night and it, it's it's a perfect time for that show it's a creepy show anyway <laughs> so late at night everything it's all dark outside and yeah yeah and, and Art imagine Bell, listening to it in a dark room you know these hosts have to be so like attuned to dealing with just loads and loads of bullshit absolute, from people and absolute nut jobs yeah because like and Art Bell was cool because like you know I was listening the other night and they'd play they they're playing like old episodes of Coast to Coast AM, 
and Art Bell would be like, yes, you're on Coast to Coast AM. And this guy on the other line was like, yeah, Art, I'm a time traveler. And Art didn't skip a beat. He was like, oh, what time have you traveled from? And he just totally like is just playing along with this guy. That might be kind of a fun job, you know, because it would just be like you get the crazies, but, you know, they can't really necessarily hurt you because you're on the other end and, you know. Just well, hear their crazy, entertaining stories. Later on in the conversation, Art Bell was like, "I'm amazed at how uh, how how well you've uh, your your English skills are. If you're so from so far in the future that you can still speak our our Good. dialect and everything, and you start you're still using like slang so from got our a time. Sense of humor too. Yeah, like he's he's totally calling these people out on their bullshit, and like they don't even like the the people don't even realize that he's doing it. So I think that's <laughs> kind of funny. But anyway, um. This is about this is about a uh, Chile- Chilean government, um, a Chilean government, the Chilean motherfucking government, releasing uh, baffling UFO footage. And um, I watched it. I don't know. In today's day and age, with Photoshop and all these other video editing software, it is so much easier to fake something, yeah. to make some fake video that looks real, but it isn't. Um, that's my kind of thing. I'm waiting on, like, I need to see some actual, like, expert look at this video. Because when I was looking at it, it looked really clean for a military, whatever, drone video or something. Maybe that's how they look. I'm not an expert on that. Um, but, uh, some of the other videos that I've seen, I don't, I didn't remember them looking that clear. There was some kind of grain involved. Now, maybe it's I've been looking at drone footage from years ago, not modern drone footage. I'm no drone expert, but um, I don't know. It just looked a bit polished, and I, yeah, I don't know. I well, don't know. It's, it was, it was it's taken from November 2014, and a Chilean Navy helicopter spot a UFO during yeah. a, a routine flight. Uh, they filmed the unidentified object using an infrared camera and noticed two different radar stations above the UFO, but neither uh, base could detect it. Strangely, the helicopter's radar could also, quote, not see the object, but it was clearly visible to the pilot and co-pilot on board. The mm. lengthy encounter featured one additional and very bizarre detail in that the UFO apparently ejected a spray of hot gas or water twice while uh-huh. it was being filmed by the infrared camera, which was picked well, up by... Well, that's what that... That that uh, black yeah, cloud was. That yeah. on the, um, attempts to communicate. W- attempts to communicate with the object produced no response, and the helicopter eventually departed from the area after UFO disappeared into the clouds. Um, the remarkable footage was then turned over to the CEFAA, which is a group uh, tasked with studying UFOs under the auspices of the Chilean Air Force. According to the organization, the video was subjected to an uh, exhaustive investigation by a committee, which includes a variety of aviation experts. Uh, however, despite numerous meetings to discuss the footage and event, the group could find no explanation for the UFO sighting, and nearly every conventional source was eliminated okay. thanks to a wealth of weather, satellite, and radar data right. made available to them. Um, an airplane, a drone, space junk re-entering the atmosphere, and a weather balloon were all dismissed as possibilities. An analysis of the video determined that the UFO was indeed a three-dimensional object and that the footage was not hoaxed. Ultimately, Mm. having been left with no possible answers, the final conclusion from the group was that the object was a genuine, quote, unidentifiable aerial phenomenon, or as we like to call it, a UFO. In the annals of promising UFO cases, this newly revealed 2014 event may be one of the strongest to come along in quite some time, both for the video evidence as well as a stunningly thorough investigation by the Chilean government. 
Uh, unfortunately, as always, seems to be the case with UFOs. We are still left with more questions than answers when it comes yeah, to the Yeah, I mean, that's phenomenon. the thing. I mean, you're always going to have questions about it. Because I know there were other footage, other photos, and other things. You thought, oh, it's totally legitimate. It, it, it's There's no way. It's a 3D object. And and then, oh, you find out later, oh, it was a hoax? Well, I, I had no idea. That, that really did trick me. Um, I don't know for sure. I mean, that does sound pretty legitimate. But at the same time, like, wasn't that person, that group that was investigating it, weren't they like a UFO group? Yeah. So, I mean... That's not really an unbiased source. Well, you're not. You're never. Gonna, you're never going to get or investigation. Somebody investigating. Yeah, you're never going to get a truly unbiased source when it comes to UFOs. You're going to have. Well, what I'm talking about is not necessarily source is not the right word. What I meant was an unbiased group that's overseeing and analyzing the footage. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get that either. Uh, honestly, I think that. Um, you're Why not? I mean, because I know in the past, I think there was a lot of skeptics who had their own organizations and well that's another thing they're biased for skepticism right. so i but I, I think it would be better if you just had somebody who's a photo expert and a video expert there's and nothing have no say wrong in either. with calling something a ufo all it means is unidentified no, no absolutely not it could be unidentified flying object could be some experimental aircraft from some other country or or it could be a, a spaceship it could be it could be some an alien spacecraft but UFO doesn't necessarily mean automatically alien. Aliens. In origins. Yeah, it's not no, it's, it's not, not it's like a, that ancient alien show with the guy with the funky hair. Show <laughs> that completely just delegit it just uh, oh man, it just delegitimized de delegitimatized history channel even more than it already was. And God, I I I I think I saw like one episode and I couldn't even finish it. I was just like, no, this is all bullshit. Sorry. The History <laughs> Channel, aka the Hitler Channel, because <laughs> literally all they like talking about is World War Two shit and apparently ancient aliens. Um yeah, <laughs> aliens. <laughs> I don't know. I guess what I guess why I wanted to share or talk about this was because I like how this is from two thousand fourteen. Yeah, it's it's really recent and, and that is a good thing to discuss because there hasn't been one of those at least that I've heard of or heard about in the news. So, you know, that's pretty cool. But then again, there isn't a show like Sightings or Unsolved Mysteries that talks about the, those things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not going to lie, folks. I mean, I have people that ask me sometimes, like, well, what, what's, you know, what's your opinion on this phenomenon and that UFO case? It's like, guys, I'm not interested in it enough to be like one of these people who research this shit as a I hobby. I think it's interesting. But, yeah, I, I'll read a book about stuff, and, you know, maybe if I read a case that sounds particularly interesting and I think it would be worth discussing, sure. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not a UFOologist or anything. I'm not going to go to the UFO conventions. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Tom DeLonge on this shit, you know. I'm, I haven't dedicated a large portion of my life to studying and researching UFO cases. Um, I, I'm mainly more interested in Unsolved Mysteries, the show, and how awesome uh, just all the elements came together to make every segment yeah. entertaining, regardless of what they were talking about. But, yes, I do skew more towards the UFO stuff because I just find uh, anything that's mysterious as far as other forms of life out there, that to me is very fascinating. It is because it, it it's, it's kind of it's scary, but at the same time, kind of comforting. Because you're like, okay, we're not alone in this universe. I don't think we are anyway. I don't no, think that's no, possible. Absolutely not. 
So, yeah, that's that. I will post a link to that on our uh, Facebook page so you can go and check that out for yourself. It's actually got a video, and it's at the top of the page, but it's not a video that just tells you what the fuck it's saying. It's the actual video of the yeah. uh, radar footage that shows this kind of uh, thing. And it's kind of it's radar, so it's, you know, it's not like this HD. It's like black and white. Yeah, it's not this HD video of a UFO, but it is it is good quality video, though. It's, it's not grainy and... All that, because, I mean, you know, let's face it, the 1080 video is on everything now. It's on fucking spy glasses and drones and phones and Home Alones. I'm sorry, I just felt the need to rhyme there. Um, (laughs) Kevin McAllister's and, yeah, anyway, that... that what am I fucking talking about? Anyway, um, so, I mean, the the, the video quality... Yeah, I know, I don't either. Uh, I gotta stop hitting hitting that uh that meth before starting the uh podcast <laughs> helps me concentrate though and it makes my teeth look great um but no 1080 video is on everything now so don't be surprised if you see good quality video of stuff because i mean well yeah i mean it, it i don't i guess i just haven't seen a lot of radar video like that so it was kind of just looking at it, it was like wow that looks really clear for something like this yeah much like all the hidden cameras i have installed in your house mike it's all 1080p now <laughs> Uh, so speaking of strange phenomena, that uh, ties into uh, the next, actually the first uh, segment we're going to be discussing today on uh, this episode. Uh, we're only doing two because the second one is really lengthy. So, um, but long it'll be as, worth it. Long as a bitch. Yeah. So anyway, this one is the Gurdon Light. Now, I selected this one because I thought it was – there was a certain sort of uh, sentimentality and kind of like down-homeness about it. <laughs> you know, this this kind of folklore, kind of local folk legend thing. And um, mainly because there's a photo of this light, which is a bright red light in like the darkness on this, on this uh, railroad track. And it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> It's menacing. It's, it, it is very menacing. It's, it's menacing. It's. I'm looking at it right now. It, it's. It's just. It's the unknown. You know. It's just this red light in the middle of this uh, railroad track with all these trees around, and it, it's. It, it looks like something out of a Stephen King movie or, or straight from a Stephen King novel. Or it reminds me of those scenes in Ghostbusters 2 that had like the red lights and stuff like that in it. Um, and just red itself is just like stop caution, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, it kind of it kind of plays on my biggest fears that I had as a child because, like, I remember being at church when I was a kid, and we'd be like out and it'd be like late at night. And it'd be like night church, is what I called it, like when I had to go to church at night or whatever. And we like all the kids would be back in the playground area, and it'd be like pitch black and we'd see something out in the woods, like a glow or something, and we'd all run like hell back to you know the main area you know and 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 as a kid it would scare me so much but like i always took comfort in the fact that there was some kind of explanation for what i was seeing and my brother or or somebody would be like oh don't worry that's just the the dew on the trees that reflected in the light and that's what you saw that's the reflection of some car headlights or something yeah but see this this preys on my childhood fears because this there's no nobody knows what the hell why these lights are out here what they are yeah. Um. You know what causes them? It's it's very similar to the um, ghost lights. Barfa. 
the Marfa lights. Yeah, yeah. the Marfa lights. Yeah, which is one so cover the Gurdon light is described as a mysterious glowing light that floats above the railroad tracks in Gurdon, Arkansas. Uh, in December of 1931, a railroad section foreman named Will McLean, he fired one of his workers named Lewis McBride because he apparently sabotaged a section of the track and caused a freight train derailment. In retaliation, McBride then beat McLean and killed him with a pickaxe. God damn. It's pretty intense. He went all my bloody Valentine on his ass. McLean's body was later found by a search party along the side of the tracks. McBride confessed to the murder and was later executed for the crime. Now, not long after the murder, people began seeing a mysterious phenomenon named the Gurdon Light, a strange glowing light that floats along the railroad tracks. Many believe that the light is the spirit of Will McLean haunting the tracks, and the light is his lantern, which he carried while working on the tracks. One of the first sightings was by a conductor named John. While driving a train, he saw a light on the back platform and observed that his light was following the train before it shot up in the air. It continued to follow the train for over a mile and then shot into a cemetery. And I could see why you think, oh, it's a ghost thing, because it goes straight into a cemetery. Since then, thousands of people have gone to the train tracks in hopes of seeing the Gurdon light. Several eyewitnesses say that the light flashes slowly, floats about one to two, one to two three feet in the air, and then veers off and then vanishes completely. To this day, there have been no complete ex explanations for what the Gurdon light may be. Now, Gurdon is a small town in Arkansas that has about a population of 2,700 people, and this is their most famous attraction. It's going around, and it was, it was kind of also uh, sort of like a coming-of-age ritual for some of the kids in the town, and... and uh, you know, you go out and go in the woods and see the Gurdon light. Came yeah. kind of a tradition within the families there. Yeah, and a lot of them, uh, a lot of them who are being interviewed, much like the Martha lights on uh, that on the other ghost light segment. You know, a lot of the townsfolk were just kind of like, you know, well, let's let's leave it alone, let's leave it be. You know, like one lady was like, I want my kids' kids to go down there and see yeah. these lights and all that, and. I don't know. Like the first thing I thought about, I was like, "You want your kids' kids to stay in this shitty small town, lady? <laughs> like, you don't want you them don't to like want anything better for your kids. <laughs> you don't want them to move to a more like cooler, like hip town. Like, you want to just stay in this podunk town in the middle of nowhere? Okay. Uh, like generations of your family, where you have like you know one McDonald's, but apparently McDonald <laughs> wasn't a good or Roy Kroc wasn't a good guy. So maybe don't they know. don't even have a McDonald's there. Which could they have a McDowell's. A McDowell's. A Mc, <laughs> McMeaties. That was what... Uh, Invader Zim, that cartoon Invader Zim, I think that's, yeah. they, uh, that was their yeah. McDonald's knockoff. It was McMeaties. Um, I don't know how that cartoon became such a hipster cartoon or whatever. Maybe. I don't know either. It was a goth thing, I think. Yeah, it was a, kind of a gothy thing. I, I never thought the show was that great. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, the, like I, I love stories like this. This is pretty cool. I mean, I, yeah. lo I love how there's no explanation for it. Well, one guy on the segment was a physicist and, and his kind of thought. Yeah, Dr. Charles Lemming. He investigated several theories as to what the Gurdon light may be. One theory says the lights may come from headlights on the interstate. However, Charles was able to find several eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen the light before the interstate was made. Another possible explanation for the Gurdon light is swamp, swamp gas, which makes me think of Men in Black. It, was just, it wasn't anything. It was just swamp gas. <laughs> Created by decomposing vegetation, was spontaneously combusts, 
However, many eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the light when it was windy, so it could not be swamp gas. Another theory, and also swamp gas. I mean, just the title, it just sounds awful. It sounds too similar to swamp ass, which is something I usually (laughs) get after hours of of sitting in one spot while doing a podcast. Yeah, you live in Florida, so you've you've probably witnessed and smelt a lot of swamp ass. Wow, that was really gross, Mike. Um, we have class. We have class and a, a level of dignity that we maintain in this podcast, and you just broke that. But I mean, oh, the, swamp, the swamp gas thing. I mean, I'm sorry, folks. I just got to bust this out. That is just that is just ridiculous. Like the some of the theories. That's like uh, for the Martha Lights one. It was like some theories state that it's a jackrabbit uh, with a, a, a lightning bug in its mouth, and it's running around the prairie. <laughs> Some of these theories are just like, come on, dude! Like that's like the guy who thought the Mothman was a bird. Oh yeah, the, the uh, well, in all fairness, that guy he he didn't think that's what it was. He was just saying that's. I what, know. The, yeah, yeah. But it was still like, it's like God, get real, people. You know, like I get it. It's unexplained, and you want to like you know, in your world, everything. You want to debunk it. Yeah, everything has to make sense in some people's worlds. You know, nothing can be unexplained. There's got to be a. But even even the scientist guy said that it it's not swamp gas because there were eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen the light when it was windy. Another theory, though, is that the light is the P.S. electric effect, which occurs when quartz crystals under immense pressure emit an electric current. Gurdon sits above large amounts of quartz crystals in a fault line, which supports this theory. That actually sounds kind of plausible, to be honest. Uh, also, many yeah. people claim the Gurdon light was seen after the murder of Will McLean, which was around the same time that a major earthquake occurred on a fault. However, what cannot be explained is how the current migrates above the surface and into a ball-like shape. And I, th- I find that fascinating. There can be unexplained earthly uh, a phenomenon that's actually from Earth. It's an, it is created by something that's within the Earth. It's it's not ghostly or, or uh, there's a natural explanation for it. Uh, but we just don't know what it is yet, and it, or we don't know everything about it. So I think that's a pretty plausible theory. If I was going to go with something, I'd probably go with that. It, may, it seems like there's a lot of evidence that supports it. But I could see why the people in the town are like, just leave it alone. We live in some podunk town in Arkansas. This is like our only <laughs> claim to fame. Thing, claim to fame. It, it's our lame claim, claim to, to fame. fame. Oh, I, uh, so, I, drive, I drive with you on the Weird Al. Yeah, so really, it, it's it's their attraction. Like, who else is it? Nobody's going to really want to go to Gurdon on purpose if, it doesn't, if they don't have this Gurdon light. Every time I, I hear have to the be word... honest, though, I could see why it'd be pretty scary oh, yeah, for a lot of people. Because you're going around in the middle of the night already as it is, and that's already scary. Going out in the middle of the night in the woods... I wouldn't be. I, I don't even know if I do that. Even just going into the middle, going into the woods in the middle of the night, um, and then you see some light. Well, man, that that would be pretty creepy. Yeah, I mean, during the day is one thing, you know, but but at night there's just uh, there just the I don't know the what, atmosphere. I don't know what it is about the the human brain or whatever, but uh, it's just something about the darkness is just more. It's probably that natural instinct. You're not expected to see a lot of light in the darkness because it's all dark. To so me, when you see something that's really bright and you don't know where it's coming from, yeah, that, that that's very scary because there's a contrast there. 
Well, to me, I think it stems from our our primitive development of fight or flight. Like, yeah. you know, back in the days where we were kill or be killed, you know, where we had to run from predators and all that or, you know, what have you. I think that the darkness represented an uncertainty uh, because you couldn't see uh, a predator. So I think um, a natural yeah. fear response um, started to happen, you know, in, in our brains or whatever when, when we were, you know, ev- evolving through the years or whatever. Uh, whether you want to call it natural selection or evolution, that's up to you. But uh, it depends on your religious background yeah. or not. But um, I think that's why we're fra- we as humans are afraid of the dark is because it represents a potential threat because we can't see if there's a potential predator. Which is, a lot of times on Unsolved Mysteries, there are predators in the darkness. (laughs) Well, also, I mean, we've seen, if you've seen a lot of horror films or seen ghost segments on Unsolved Mysteries, the dark represents places where a lot of scary, weird, unexplained shit happens. So, you know, like Bill Murray says, Bankman says, and Ghostbusters 2, sometimes shit happens, and who are you going to call? Uh, but, uh, there's no Ghostbusters there to save you. You're in the middle of the woods and there's some fucking light that's showing up out of nowhere. I mean, that's a very chilling thing to witness. Um, I think with this, though, if it is ghostly in nature, though, then the guy is kind of, the ghost is kind of a dick. Like, Will McClain, like, really? Why are you haunting the tracks, bro? <laughs> <laughs> You're scaring the, the townsfolk. Oh, that doesn't seem to bother ghosts from what I've learned. Yeah, I, I know. But usually it sounds like the ghosts do that because they're not they're not benevolent. They're malevolent. Yes. It took me so long to learn the difference between those two words. I'm not gonna yeah. lie. It's okay. It sounds similar. Think you're better than me, Mike? You think, no, I don't. You think you're smarter than me? No, I don't. You might be, I don't know. Um but yeah, no, I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. I, I mean, I think with this, I would want to see it just because, like, it seems like all the lights do is just sit there. They just chill. It's yeah. Not, it's not like they come racing after you or anything like no, that. No, I mean, racing after. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'd check these out, you know? I mean, they... they uh, They're, like, floating around, just blinking on and off. Just, uh, just hanging around. And then dissipate somewhere. I w- they didn't mention in the segment if these lights, um, li- like, I don't think they mentioned people trying to actually chase after these lights, like on the other, the, the ghost light segment where people actually tried to go. It's kind of funny. Well, they tried I'm to just get- imagining that. Banjo music playing in the background. But no, they tried <laughs> to get. Lights. <laughs> they try to get closer and closer to the light, and it's like almost like a mirage. Like, the closer you get to it, you know, it just keeps going further and further back or whatever. Um, yeah, if that's the case, that probably would be some naturally occurring thing. To me, that would be unnatural, because if it kept going away further and further, then that's. Not- Isn't that like a mirage, though? Well, I think a mirage is caused from it's caused from heat coming off from the ground. Yeah, maybe it's can, a different type of mirage. Maybe it's a different type of earthbound mirage, or maybe it isn't. Maybe the Marfa lights are some UFO thing, or I don't know. Maybe this is the spirit of Will McLean. Well, but I, I think it's the quartz thing. Yeah. Still, still a cool a, story, though, yeah. and, and it's a good segment, and it's memorable. I mean, the image alone is enough to strike fear in anyone, and, uh, you know, it's that type of down-home, small-town sort of thing that does make the segment it's rather likable. It's a good kind of biscuits and gravy episode that'll make you want to boil a hog's ass with a spoonful of hot sauce. I don't 
spoil a hog's ass? Does I, anybody I even do that? I don't. I don't know what I just said. I don't know. That might makes me more frustrated than a three-legged dog trying to bury a turd on a frozen pond. Hey, <laughs> Sorry. Um, Mike Morris, Moon Pie Face. Um, anyway, moving on. People are like, oh, stop making fun of that guy. I know, man. That guy needs his own, like, advocacy page because, like, the amount of people who stuck up for that guy. Now we're getting into some real, like, ins- like some real, like, the real fan shit, if you even know what we're talking about right now. Um, <laughs> you are like... I do leave not, Mike Martin alone. I do not no, believe not that there. It's a different. Leave Mike Morris. I do not believe Mike that Morris with the medications guy. that I was on at the time, that their polygraph could adequately account for those conditions. My friends had told me to secure an attorney. That's why I did not take the polygraph. My face looks like a moon pie, and it's probably not as delicious as one. <laughs> I may or may not leave any of that in the podcast. I don't know. All right, moving on. Um, so Dude, the long ass. Oh man, long as a bitch. Okay, guys, case. if you're not comfortable right now, if you are, let's say someone listening to this right now is like, say, I don't know, a window washer for like skyscrapers, like you're say, hanging upside down. Yeah, on a bar. Get to a comfortable place and settle the fuck in because this segment is long. Long as hell. Very long. I can't think of any analogies right now for length, but it's it's quite long. Um, anaconda long. Yeah. My anaconda does not, in fact, want any unless you have buns, hon. Um, I'm just <laughs> just full of the corniness. I don't. This is the corniest podcast. Like, I've been the most corniest on this podcast than any other podcast that we've done. Like, the jokes have just been awful, not funny. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, let me just say real quick, when I like shit on myself, like, you know, like self-deprecating humor, uh, I don't actually think that I'm like this sad, depressed, because like some people out there have like messaged me and they're like, you know, I hear the tone in your voice and you sound sad. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I I just think it's funny to like make fun of myself. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm fine people. Don't worry. Uh, despite the videos I've been releasing on my YouTube channel. (laughs) In case you're curious, it's youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. Anyway. That was not a shameless uh, plug. I really had an emotional moment that I just said. Anyway, um, in in honor of uh, people in the United States, at least, getting the day off from work for Martin Luther King Day, I thought it would be fitting to cover the Martin Luther King case. Unsolved Mysteries did uh, a segment on this. Um, I suspect that half the uh, show was probably this just this one segment. Yeah, yeah. Because this is a, this is a long one. Uh, this is this segment without commercials is thirty minutes, and that's very unusual um, for an unsolved mystery segment. That might have been the whole show. Might have been the whole show. Yeah, it might have been. Although, I mean, I feel like it deserved it. Although it does beg the question, you know, because there are conspiracy theories and stuff with the Martin Luther King assassination. It kind of begs the question: Why did Unsolved Mysteries never do an episode of the JFK assassination? Yeah. They did. Yeah. They even did RFK. I mean, they didn't quite go into the whole assassination, but they went into the pictures that were taken of uh, Robert F. Kennedy um, before and after he was assassinated. Uh, but they at least touched on it. But yeah, JFK, they, they didn't touch that one with a 10-foot pole, but here they're talking about Martin Luther King. Um, both have uh, their big groups of uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, Martin Luther King, as everybody knows, was uh, one of the first big advocates for equal uh, civil rights for um, black people in America during the uh, 60s and, um, you know, the Jim Crow law era. 
um, times, and he was uh, non, you know, he preached nonviolence and passive aggressive, or not passive aggressive, uh, passive <laughs> resistance, um, <laughs> passive aggressive, passive aggression. Like, oh yeah, you guys segregating us is just great. We're loving it. It's awesome. Real nice. That's 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 what he preached. No, I'm just joking. Um. No, he was, uh, he was very. He was inspired by Gandhi and all that, and he, he was he was generally regarded as a really really good dude. Although you have uh, you know I, I've heard rumblings from uh, Jackie Kennedy talking about how behind the scenes he was actually kind of a dog, and how he would talk about women and this that and the other, and you know whatever. I don't have any evidence to substantiate that, but apparently JFK's wife was not a huge fan of Martin Luther King. Um, so anyway. Um, we're gonna dig into this this uh, cheesecake here right here and now. So sit down and throw up your feet and relax your socks. Um, here we go. So uh, Martin Luther King arrived in Memphis on April third, nineteen sixty-eight, a day before he was assassinated. King checked into the Lorraine Motel and began planning a march in support of striking city sanitation workers. So city sanitation workers were on strike. King's presence at the hotel was well publicized. Across the street was a series of rundown buildings, which included a rooming house run by a woman named Betsy Brewer. On April 14th, just before 7 p.m., a tenant named William Anschus, that's a German last name, actually, found the door to the communal bathroom locked. Now, first, let me just say communal bathroom, uh, gross. Yeah. Communal bathroom, that would be (laughs) the worst thing ever. You're sharing a bathroom with everybody in a hotel, motel, whatever you want to call it, room and board b&b anyway probably pretty stinky pretty smelly pretty got some stains of an ambiguous nature in there i'd imagine um inside the bathroom james earl ray a career petty criminal loaded a rifle and took aim at the lorraine motel king stepped outside to go to dinner a single shot rang out the bullet struck king in the face throwing him violently backward onto the balcony several friends rushed to his aid his wounds were severe and irreparable however According to the government, Ray rushed to the room that he rented that day, and he wrapped his rifle along with an overnight bag in a bedspread. In the hallway, Ray was seen by tenant Charles Stevens, mere seconds from a clean getaway. Uh, Officials believe that Ray saw police cars outside of the hotel with all his stuff in hand. He got nervous, and he dropped his bundle of evidence in front of the Knipe Amusement Company. Uh, That... that that particular part of the case is like why why like i I understand you're like okay yeah i'm nervous i'm gonna get caught why would why would you leave the murder weapon anywhere like yeah you could get caught but wouldn't you want to go on the run with the murder weapons and nobody finds it i'm just doesn't make any sense no i mean that that part of it is very like why would you like you know the the literal smoking gun you left like outside of a uh, a store where someone's easily gonna just walk out and see that and be like oh well, hey a rifle that I should probably tell police about this someone just got assassinated uh you know over by this hotel this uh, famous you know guy so uh, felt like he threw it in a river or did anything of that nature. Nope, just, just plopped it down it. right in front of a storefront. A moment later, three witnesses inside the building saw a white car, possibly a Mustang, speed away. Police uh, recovered the rifle, but uh, the by the, as well as his personal items. Yeah, because they were with the rifle. So I mean, that's the thing. It's bad enough that it's the rifle, 
but like your wallet and all of your other personal items and then they were able to identify the guy well by the time they did identify ray he had fled the country Two months later, Ray was apprehended by British authorities in London's Heathrow Airport as he attempted to board a flight to Brussels. March 10, 1969, in Tennessee, Ray pled guilty to the shooting of Martin Luther King. Ray was sentenced to 99 years in the penitentiary. Days later, Ray fired his attorney and claimed that he had been coerced to plead guilty. He claimed he was part of a conspiracy man. Over the years, this theory has gained popularity. Ray spent most of his adult life in and out of prison. His crimes were almost exclusively holdups and robberies, none of which involved violence. Indeed, to many, Ray seemed like an unlikely candidate for such a horrendous crime. On April 23, 1967, almost a year before the King assassination, Ray escaped from the state penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri, where he was serving a 20-year sentence for robbing a grocery store. For some, Ray's next movements indicated a conspiracy. Ray initially fled to Chicago, yo, what up, Valerie, and then in mid-July to Montreal. Using the name Eric Gall, or what sounded like Gall, he discreetly solicited the criminal underground for a phony passport or Siemens papers. <laughs> he said Siemen. According to Ray, he was eventually approached by a shadowy character using the name Raoul. <laughs> Ray claims that nine months later, it was Raoul that set up... For the king, that set Ray up for the King assassination, but said when they first met up, Raoul was only looking for an accomplice. The name Raoul just, I don't know, it's kind of funny to me. Raoul. This is this sounds like a Latin lover. My, ooh, ooh, my name is Raoul Consuelos. <laughs> oh, Raoul, you're so foreign and interesting. Again, folks, I don't know what the hell's gotten into me on this one. <laughs> So when he first met up with Raul, the try not to cringe challenge. Yeah, episode. I know, right? I'm saying some pretty cringeworthy, cringeworthy. Jeez, I'm having a stroke too. Apparently, <laughs> um, when they first met up, Raul was only looking for an accomplice in a smuggling scheme. There was no assassinations going on at this point. It was just like you know, hey, you're already on the run. You're looking for some papers. Yeah. I can get you your. Ray papers. said, uh, "Yeah, Ray claimed that in exchange for Ray's agreeing to perform certain tasks, evidently of criminal nature." One, he was provided with money, and two, he was promised at some point he would be given identification, a passport, something he needed to get out of the country. Ray alleges one of his first jobs with Raul involved smuggling unknown contraband across the U.S.-Canadian border, what up, Morgan, near Detroit, for which Ray was paid $750. Ray was the—wait, first of all, $750 in, like, 1967, that had to be, like, $10,000 now. Yeah, that was a lot of money. That was a lot of fucking money. Holy crap. Uh— so anyway, Ray was then directed by Raul to go to Alabama after this whole smuggling thing. Ray has detailed all of his activities to his new attorney, Dr. William Pepper. Ironically, Pepper had once been associated with Dr. King. Um, in 1978, Pepper was convinced by one of King's closest friends uh, to meet with Ray. Pepper is now convinced that Ray's story is true and that Ra- Raul is the key to the conspiracy. Quote, what Raul wanted to do was to keep Ray on a string, have him at various points, places, pay him bits of money, have him do various things, so that he was available for use anytime they wanted to use him, always with the promise of giving him these travel documents. Ray says that in Birmingham, Raul gave him $2,000 and told him to purchase a car. 
Seven months before the assassination, Ray did, in fact, buy a 1966 Mustang. Ray says he then drove to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, for another smuggling venture. A month later, Ray traveled to Los Angeles to await further instructions. In mid-March, less than three weeks before the assassination, Raul told Ray to head to Atlanta. There, just five days before the assassination, Raul outlined their next criminal enterprise. The next bit of uh, activity involved selling guns. The scenario he developed was one of which involved the purchase of some sample weapons that Raul would show to some of these gun runners. Once they made their selection, they would be bought in volume. Ray alleged that later that day, he and Raul drove to Birmingham. Following Raul's instructions, he went to a gun shop where he purchased a uh, 243 caliber rifle. I don't know if I'm saying that right. 243 caliber rifle. Yeah, 243. Uh, I think it's a 243 caliber rifle. I don't know. Some of you. Some of you uh, pissed off about the militia Kentucky shooter. Get, I could me. be wrong. I mean, maybe it is point. Maybe it is. I think of like a 45 is a 45 caliber, right? So wouldn't it be 243 caliber or 243 caliber? Maybe. Yeah, 243 caliber. That Any, is a 243 caliber rifle with a telescopic sight. Any fucking hoozles. Raul instructed Ray to buy a 243 caliber rifle, which he fitted with a telescopic sight. Uh, yep. From the people who witnessed his purchase of the rifle, he seemed to not know the first thing about rifles. He didn't know what he wanted. He had to return the first rifle and exchange it for a different one. He made it seem more unlikely that he was working alone. He gave if that the, was the case. Yeah. That, that does add a lot of credence to this conspiracy theory because they're yeah. like, well, he's the one who only did it by himself. Why does he not know how these rifles work or doesn't know what rifle to use or any of that? What, did he practice, on some, did he practice on some watermelons in his backyard and go, nah, that one ain't going to get it. Better go and return it. <laughs> so according to Ray, he gives the rifle to Raul a day before the assassination. That was the last time he saw the rifle. According to well, actually told him to exchange. Ray said Royal Raul told him to exchange the weapon the next day, giving him specific instructions on what to buy. A Remington model 760 game master pump action. Right. Well, I said he exchanged it, but I didn't go in, de in depth about yeah. what he exchanged it for. But yeah, that's what he exchanged it for. According to James Earl Ray, that was the last time he saw the rifle. The investigation concludes it was that rifle the Game Master that he exchanged it for, that was the rifle that was used to kill Martin Luther King the next day. On the evening before his death, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered one of the most stirring and prophetic speeches of his life. So one where he goes, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. And then that kind of like ends the uh, sample of speech that they're wanting to convey, you know, about him saying how he may not get there with everyone. Less than 24 hours after he spoke those words, Martin Luther King Jr. would be shot down dead. His accused killer, James Earl Ray, pled guilty and the case was considered closed. But three days uh, after his conviction, Ray recanted his guilty plea, saying he was just a pawn in an elaborate plan to kill King. Uh, but his claims of innocence were dismissed and the case remained closed. In 1976, a select committee of the House of Representatives were convened to reinvestigate the assassinations of King and JFK. The committee concluded that Ray was the lone killer of King. It is now the belief of Walter Falkroy, the chairman of the MLK subcommittee, that the conviction was wrong. Quoting Mr. Falkroy, he says, When you look at a, murder, a murderer, you look at three things. Who had the motive, means, and opportunity. I am now, I am not, 
I am now not convinced that James Earl Ray had the motive, means, and certainly the opportunity to pull it off as it was done. To this yeah, after I saw this, too, I kind of had questions about that. That I really had questions before because I didn't really know about this other sort of stuff. Now it could be, oh, James Earl Ray is trying to make up stuff so he doesn't, you know, so he can get out or whatever, whatever he's trying to do, so he's not guilty. But um, a lot, there's a lot of details to this though, and I know there are some super detailed conspiracy theories as well that are just pulled out of people's asses. But I don't know. I mean, you have some legitimate people like this guy Fauntleroy. Um, uh, or I, I maybe that's I don't know if that's how you say his name like Fontroy Falkroy Faltroy Fontroy your, your guess is as good as mine um I I agree with his his statement here he says uh, when he's talking about James Earl Ray committing the crime and then getting out of Memphis and then out of the country he says I find it more difficult today to believe that James Earl Ray acting alone pulled off the crime of the century was able to get out of Memphis out of the country into Canada to get three passports, and to go all the way to Europe without help. Right. I mean, I'm going to save my final conclusion to for the end of this because I have so much stuff i got to get through. But Yeah. yeah. Um, now, um, to this day, James Earl Ray maintains he did not shoot King, but the FBI stands by their finding that Ray was the lone gunman. Uh, now researchers claim new information corroborates Ray's claims of conspiracy, uh, Walter Falkroy are calling for the release of the committee's files, which have been sealed till the year 2029, uh, and he's also calling for a new investigation. I love watching Unsolved Mysteries now, and like, for instance, um, another case like the death of Elvis Presley. Yeah. Um, his, Elvis Presley's um, private autopsy that his father Vernon uh, commissioned, those uh, were, are sealed until the year 2020, I believe. Um, it's cool watching the show now, knowing that we're getting closer and closer to the years that these sealed records are going to be available. Because I imagine back in the 90s watching this show, you're thinking, Jesus, I'm going to be an old man by the time yeah. I get to find out about this stuff. But looking back now, it's like, oh, cool. You know, like, the, you know, we'll find out. Uh, 2009? Is that what you said? So they should have already been opened up. Then. No, no. 2029. Oh, okay, 2029. Yeah, okay. so we still got we still got uh, 12 more years. But we'll, in our lifetime, we'll you know be able to know more about the if, uh, investigation if, of this committee. If it actually gets that far again, like oh, if the files don't disappear. <laughs> yeah, like the uh, RFK picks did, um, but that's a whole other segment that we've yet to cover. Um, so at 3.30 p.m. on the day of Martin Luther King's killing, um, James Earl Ray claims to have met his uh, mysterious contact, Raul, at a cafe. Uh, Raul told Ray to go to Betsy Brewer's rooming house upstairs. He wanted Ray to rent a room and then await instructions. Betsy Brewer's, um, uh, her, her, the boarding house that she ran fronted Main Street next to the Knipe Amusement Company, where the rifle would later be found. The back windows, uh, however, uh, near the communal bathroom, faced the Lorraine Motel. At 4 p.m., Ray rented out a room and brought along an overnight bag for appearance's sake. Raul asked Ray to leave the Mustang parked nearby because Raul wanted to use it that night. The next hour is pure speculation. Ray himself has changed his story several times, but always maintains he left the boarding house at 5 p.m. and never returned. Just before 6... Uh, he drove the car to a service station 
and at 6.01 p.m., Martin Luther King was shot. Ray claims that at the very moment King was shot, he himself was totally unaware of the event and was driving from the gas station back to the rooming house. Quote, as he got to the corner of uh, Calhoun in South Maine, he saw police everywhere. The state makes a great deal of the fact that James fled the scene, but one must remember that James was a fugitive. He was on the run and certainly not going to hang around when he saw the police, so he turned around and began to make his way out of Memphis, end quote. And that was, the, uh, that was Pe- uh, Pepper, uh, William Pepper, uh, who qu- said that. For many skeptics, Ray's apparent lack of expertise with firearms seems to argue against the official account. Quote, in the Army, he was trained with an M1, and he was at the lowest level of ability. The idea of loading one shot into that .30-06 and gambling everything on that one shot makes no sense whatsoever. But then you have retired FBI agent Joe Hester that came in, and he was a great interview on this segment, I thought. Yeah, he, he was. Had, he had a lot of personality. He says, quote, You have to bear in mind that the back of the rooming house at the balcony of the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was killed was less than 100 yards. With a telescopic sight at such a short distance, almost anyone in the world could have, made, could have killed Dr. King. It really required no great marksmanship whatsoever. Many people feel that the shot that killed Martin Luther King was not from the window of the boarding house, but from the bushy abutment between the boarding house and the hotel. Quoting Walter Falkroy, It's now clear to me that the shot has come from the ground below. It's been reported to me by at least two people that the shot came from the bushes below. End quote. Eyewitnesses did report two men dressed in white that fled from the bushes after the shot rang out. But again, retired FBI agent Joe Hester declared... We, we never were sure that there was a man in the bushes, and even if there was a man in the bushes, we feel like he has absolutely nothing to do with the murder. We were, and I still am, convinced that the fatal shot came from the window behind Betsy Brewer's, end quote. Yeah, he's very confident, yeah. uh, and it's the point of being cocky. Yeah. Now, he also, uh, he was uh, talked about, they mentioned uh, one of these witnesses. Uh, there's when Ray, when Ray ran from his room in the boarding house, he was seen by another tenant named Charles Stevens, and Jim Lassar says Stevens was a shoddy witness, so this is a different guy. Where he's all like, from all accounts, Stevens is so dead drunk that there's no way of relying upon his testimony about the shot. Yeah, yeah, I was going to get to um, the, uh, the, dr- the, the, the town drunk Charles Stevens in a second. The official version states that Ray ran from um, Betsy Brewer's place, which was observed by the aforementioned Charles Stevens. However, there are serious doubts about his credibility, and as Mike said, uh, by all accounts, Charles Stevens was so dead drunk that there was no way of relying upon his testimony about the shot. So that that guy, uh, which was, again, was uh, William Pepper, who was saying this, you know, he's, he's arguing for the conspiracy, for this Raoul guy. But then, former Chief Counsel House Select Committee on, assa- on the assassination um, this guy comes in and he goes, in fact, we did not rely on him for witness identification. What we did rely on him for was having sufficient senses to be aware of a loud noise down the hall and to open the door and see somebody run by. Um, yeah, and this guy was G. Robert Blakely. And, and I could definitely, yeah, I could see somebody, no matter how drunk they are, should they should be able to be aware of some loud noise. Yeah. But... So then uh, they go on to say, what you, have, uh, what you have to realize about Charlie Stevens is that he was looking for a reward, and that became very much a business for him and his concern to try to be credible. 
um, because, you know, apparently this guy was an opportunist and he saw, you know, hey, they want my, my testimony. They're going to have to pay for yeah, it. Yeah, he was trying to get the $100,000 reward that had been put up for anyone who could identify the person who killed Dr. King. Oh, good Lord. $100,000 back in the 60s? Jeez, he'd be a millionaire by today's standards, at least. Um, so, in his flight from the rooming house, Ray reportedly ran by the Knipe Amusement Company, dropping his weapon in a panic. But a former defense... In, uh, but yeah. Former invest... God damn it. Former <laughs> defense investigators believe it is highly improbable that any killer, no matter how panicked, would exactly. drop a bundle of evidence so thoroughly incriminating. Quote, it strikes many people, myself included, that that looks like a setup. That somebody else gathered that evidence up and planted it there. And that, again, was uh, Dr. Pepper, who... Oh, my God. His name's Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I just realized that. That's fucking awesome. Where's 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 uh, Dr. Thunder or whatever, too? You, because that's an offshoot of Dr. Pepper. Uh, but I've no. never heard of Dr. Thunder. Uh, that might be a regional thing. A I've heard of Mr. Pibb. I've heard of Dr. Something Else. We, yeah. we got Dr. Thunder here. But, um, so yeah, so, so the, the, the attorney, who's apparently also got his doctorate, um, it, he's, you know, going on to further suggest that, that, that evidence was planted. Uh, a dusting of the rooming house turned up a number of fingerprints that were unidentified, but none of them were James Earl Ray's. Yeah. Uh, again, Jim Lassar says, I've worked any number of cases where you don't find fingerprints when you think you should. Uh, you may find a lot of smudges and smears, but you won't find a fingerprint that in it, in it of itself is complete enough to make a positive identification. The gun itself was void of any fingerprints except for two of James Earl Ray. Hello? Yeah, can you hear me? Okay, so this has never happened on the podcast before. Um, my fucking internet just went out, and we lost the Skype connection with Mike, so... <laughs> We are too far into this for us to start over, and I mean, we are we were almost kind of towards the end anyway, so I'm just going to go and finish this one up solo, although using my phone's uh, data plan, I'm still able to get his thoughts through um, Facebook Messenger here, so I can still put that in uh, his opinion. You just won't hear him actually saying it. Um, so anyway, I was talking about how... Um, the gun itself was void of any fingerprints except for two of James Earl Ray's. Uh, the FBI did a swab test to see if the gun had been fired. However, they never did a swab test on the gun that they believed to be the murder weapon. Um, so that's kind of confusing because it's like they did a swab test to see if the gun had been fired, but they never did a swab test on the gun that they believed to be the murder weapon. So there's more than one gun now? I'm not exactly sure what that meant. Um, quoting the uh, retired FBI agent, um, Jim Lesser again, he says, My recollection was that there was a spent shell in the chamber, so common sense would tell you the rifle had been fired, end quote. Uh, the FBI could not match the bullet that killed King with the rifle. They could only say that the bullet was consistent with that type of rifle, which is like, I don't know. That's um, what. Like, why wouldn't you go that extra mile in, in an investigation like this and be like, "Oh yeah, this bullet definitively was discharged from this firearm, 
into Martin Luther King, but no, they didn't do that. They said, well, this is the type of ammunition that goes to this type of rifle. But according to Dr. Pepper, um, it was also consistent with several million other types of rifles. End quote. Um, even for those who believe Ray's story, there's one nagging question. If James Earl Ray was indeed innocent, then why did he plead guilty? Ray claims he was coerced by his attorney who wanted exclusive publishing rights to Ray's story. If Ray had testified in court about the conspiracy, his story would have become public domain. The crucial element of Ray's story was the elusive Raul who moved Ray all around the United States. I find that hilarious that his attorney was already like, there's gold in them there, Hills. Uh, you know, let me secure the fucking publishing rights. I mean, this this lawyer, man, a pretty savvy guy to have the, the foresight to be like, oh, I can secure the publishing rights and sell it to Hollywood and, you know, make my millions that way. And, I mean, if so, wow, he really gave Ray the shaft, if that is in fact what happened. I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable. Um, and I, I also didn't really know uh, until uh, listening to this, I didn't really know that, I guess I should have known, I didn't realize that if, if somebody testifies in court, that automatically becomes public domain. Because, I mean, sometimes you hear the court cases where the cameras aren't allowed, recorders aren't allowed, whatever. Um, so I didn't realize that, that that stuff becomes public domain. Um, so one, the, one of the people um, involved in the segment goes, in our investigation to identify Ray and to find out what he did and where and when, we turned up nothing to indicate that there was a Raul or any other conspirator of this crime. In 1975, former defense investigator Harold Weisberg filed a lawsuit against the FBI. He received 60,000 pages about the King case. 60,000 pages! That's, that's more than a phone book. I mean, that's that's more than the Bible. It's more than the phone and the Bible combined. Holy crap. And I don't think I heard that number wrong. I believe they said 60,000 pages about this case. I mean, good lord! If that doesn't if that if that doesn't make you think that that there could possibly be some kind of a a, a bigger spider web that has been woven than what they want you to believe, I don't know what does. Because I mean, you know, an open and shut case, which is what they made this to seem like it was, an open and shut case isn't sixty thousand pages, people. It's just not. I mean, that's you know you're you're talking there's all kinds of details going on in these pages that this Harold Weisberg guy got his hands on 3 years later Weisberg found evidence of the files that Ray had been involved with a JC Harden <laughs> 3 years later cuz that's how fucking long it took him to read through all this shit um so this JC Harden guy comes into the picture and this became proof positive to him at least that that this this could have been a conspiracy. Quoting this guy, he goes, "When I was going through the files, there was a man by the name of JC Harden who called Jimmy from Atlanta. He's deciding to call James Earl Ray Jimmy at this point. I guess they're good buddies. Uh, he called Jimmy from Atlanta. Well, Jimmy didn't return the call. Harden then went out to California to meet with Jimmy. This was confirmed by the FBI. So is it possible that J.C. Hardin was in fact Raul? Um, at least the timing was more than simple coincidence. 
Uh, it was a live lead. One thing you have to question, given the history of this whole thing, Harden goes to California, Jimmy goes east, where Dr. King was killed. It's not like pushing buttons, but the next thing to it, and it should have been investigated. In 1968, the FBI pursued the lead long enough to, to at least produce a sketch of J.C. Harden given to them. Uh, the description was given to them by the manager of the St. Francis Hotel. However, as soon as James was arrested, the Harden investigation was dropped. Um, so, qu quoting Walter Falkroy again, he goes, We knew nothing about Harden. I would like to find Mr. Harden, and I'd like to further investigate Mr. Ray, because I don't feel like he's telling us everything he knows. Well, duh! James Earl Ray has refused to say whether Hardin and Raul are one and the same. In addition, he has been unwilling to make a positive identification of Raul. Uh, according to the retired FBI guy, Jim Lesser, he goes, I'm not convinced that there is anybody named Raul involved in this case. Um, he's just a straight-up skeptic about the whole thing. I mean, he's kind of saying all this, uh, you know, during this whole interview, this this uh, hardened FBI, retired FBI guy is saying all this stuff very, almost with like a half grin. Like, he thinks he thinks it's pure bullshit. He thinks that, you know, they got the, guy, the right guy back then, and all this other kind of speculative crap is just that. It's crap. Um, and then you got, you know, the his, his new attorney, Dr. Pepper, which is not a soda, um, it's actually the guy's name, uh, saying that James Earl Ray is a classic patsy. Uh, he's the classic, um, you know, go-along guy, the uh, the the bumbling uh, wannabe career criminal who's just a, a puppet to this uh, master criminal mastermind, Raul. Um, quoting Falkroy again, he's saying, "We do not know the we do not know the whole truth about this." We need to know in the decade of the 90s so we don't meet the same fate as Martin, Malcolm, Bobby, and John met. thought that was funny that uh, anytime you want to date anything, just like say the year in, you know, the interview or the song or whatever it is. I think, I, and, and that's funny, you know, I would, I remember growing up hearing that a lot, you know, like, it's the 90s, baby. Like, come on, it's the 90s. Like, like that meant something like the so much more impactful of a statement because like, oh, the 90s, this, you know, freaky time where things are happening. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of uh, ties into that. You know, it's the 90s. We need to know for this new there's a new generation of leadership on the streets now. And we need to know what's what went on with this King thing. So, you know it doesn't happen to future people oh which to my knowledge i mean just right off the top of my head i'm trying to think if there's any u.s figure that has been assassinated in recent memory that uh was as big as jfk and mlk and um you know all that i can't really think of anybody off the top of my head um so the big thing here is they they did not conduct a conspiracy investigation. They conducted a shooter investigation. And there are a lot of people who feel as though there should have been a proper conspiracy investigation conducted as well. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head or not, but with the JFK assassination, I mean, I'm, I believe that they looked into all angles of that, like as though, you know... There was the second shooter on the grassy knoll and all that other kind of stuff, um, and that apparently wasn't done here. So that's kind of the big controversy. Now, if you if you want to ask me what my what my particular opinion of this case is, is you, you take a 
you take a buffoon like James Earl Ray, a petty criminal um, who is holding people up but not actually killing them, you know, and, and now all of a sudden he commits, to quote Falcroy, the crime of the century. There, it is doubtful, highly doubtful in my mind that 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 he was working alone, um, just based on his travels, um, which they never really said could be substantiated with evidence. But you know, according to the, and as Mike, you know, because Mike's still messaging me from um, Facebook now, uh, Mike was saying on here, um, there, there's just too much detail. The his story is just too. There's too much specific detail in it to just say that it's across-the-board bullshit. Um, so I definitely don't think he worked alone. Um, Martin Luther King was a guy who was who rubbed a lot of people the wrong way back in a really dark time in our country's history. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to racists and messed up people they go all the way up to the top um there are people in high positions of power who also belong to the Ku Klux Klan I mean it's just it's to this day it's still happening and I you know don't think for a second these people aren't pulling strings to you know help maybe help snuff out people that they don't particularly like or find convenient with the kind of stuff they're saying um I do think, however, um, over time, because of the persistence and because of the, the, you know, demanding equality for all, I I think these kind of things have stopped because finally maybe some of these corrupt people, for the most part, have gotten kicked out of uh, positions of power. But back in those days, in the 60s, where racial tensions were at a fever pitch, yeah, I absolutely think that um, Martin Luther King could have been assassinated and, you know, a cover-up could have easily happened. And, you know, you had to have somebody because Martin Luther King was too well-liked of a character to just to just snuff out. So somebody had to get the blame. And this girl, the, this girl, this guy, James Earl Ray, was a good, um, he was a good patsy, you know. And then you got the whole attorney thing, you know, wanting the publishing rights. It's just so specific. And I don't think that James Earl Ray was a smart enough guy to cook all of these elaborate lies up. He just, nothing about this guy says intelligence to me. He's tasked with going in a gun store to buy a gun and he can't even get the right fucking gun. And he has to go back and exchange it for another one. That is documented. That is fact, that factually happened. Um, So no, this guy definitely didn't, uh, work alone. I'm getting reading some of Mike's stuff here as he's messaging me. Um, the whole aspect of him getting out of Memphis so quickly and out of the country as quickly as he did is questionable. If you put a gun up against my head and ask me what I thought, I would say the U.S. government might have been involved in MLK's assassination as well as JFK's. This is what Mike's saying right now via Facebook. Sorry, folks. This is the only way we can do it right now. I'm trying to get this podcast out, you know, as early as possible without having to re-record it. Uh, both were politicians threatening to make radical changes to government. They were advocating changes that a lot, a lot of higher-ups didn't like, which is what I was just saying. That meant to that end of, uh, or that meant uh, to the end of power and some financial gain for some. JFK wanted to get rid of the Federal Reserve and take away power from the CIA and give it back to the people. Martin Luther King was an advocate for similar ideas for changes in civil rights and so on. Now it might have, might not have been the U.S. government that was directly involved in the assassination. It could have been some other radical racist group with power, like the Ku Klux Klan. 
And maybe some members of the group were government officials. Again, what I was just saying, there's a reason why I work with this guy. We tend to agree on stuff. So uh, do I believe that it was all conspiracy? Yes and no. I do believe that Ray was involved in the crime, but I don't believe he acted alone. He wasn't totally innocent. That's my thoughts. It's a pretty controversial and crazy case. I do, I do believe some group like the government or a racist-fueled one was behind the assassination. They went to drastic measures to stop changes from happening and maintain the status quo. And thankfully for us all, they failed to maintain that. Agreed, Mike. Well put. And the uh, civil rights movement continued after MLK died. Um, very, very good input there on that. I, I agree with all Mike's sentiments. I agree that same thing. I'm not going to sit here and say who I think it was, um, you know, and point fingers, but to say that, um, James Earl Ray acted alone is just not on the mark at all. Um, so with that, um, happy Martin Luther King day, um, enjoy, your day off, but also, um, you know, if, if you can go and watch any of um, Martin Luther King's speeches on YouTube, he was a very great speaker, and I mean, he um, single, well, not single-handedly, he had a lot of help from a lot of different people, but he definitely affected change in the United States for the better as far as equal rights for, for all people, but, you know, especially black people, because back then, I mean, good lord, uh, I would not want to be a black person living in the South um, in, in the 60s. Um, that would be a very scary time for me back then. Um, and they they had to put up with that and all the, other, you know, kind of crap that went along with it. I mean, you had to have balls of steel to be alive back then if you were black. I mean, um, the bravery, you know, to deal with that, that kind of harassment. I mean, you didn't even do anything to these people, you know I mean? So for Martin Luther King to come up in there and, and be thrown in jail and, um, deal with all that. I mean, just good Lord, man. I mean, you got to have, uh, almost like, uh, almost like a, uh, from above, you know, like a spiritual mission to have the strength to go through all of that persecution, um, and he did it, you know, I mean, I can't say that I, I mean, I respect the hell out of that. Just like I respect people like Gandhi and, um, just anybody who stood for, um, you know, Stephen Biko in Africa, anybody who, um, stood up against oppression, you know, like, uh, these people are made of, of steel and I don't know. I mean, I can say for a fact that I, I'm not sure I have that same kind of constitution. So Mike has dropped out, unfortunately. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and cut the podcast. Um, on that note, um, I don't know if this is going to be shorter or longer. Uh, probably a little bit shorter because Mike and I kind of like feed off each other and we can kind of uh, keep a conversation going longer than sometimes it maybe should. But whatever, that's what you people like anyway. You people, you like that? You like how I just group y'all into a group? You people? I don't know, you're listeners. It shouldn't be that offensive, right? So, if you want more of me and Mike on uh, YouTube, more free entertainment, uh, you can find me at youtube.com slash dancingwithghosts. Um, I do vlogs. I do uh, I taste test food. I review video games. I did a video chronicling the downfall of physical media, like CDs, like what happened with that? 
Uh, I Dude, I do all kinds of stuff on my channel. It's really like a bag of trail mix. You don't know what you're going to get in there. Is, is this a peanut? Is this a raisin? Is this a macadamia nut? Uh, hopefully, it's nothing you're allergic to. That's the only thing I hope for. Uh, make sure you check out Mike's channel. Uh, he's the movie guy. He, he reviews movies, and he does some other stuff on there, but movies is kind of like his main thing, and he's very good at breaking down a movie and taking the piss out of movies, too. His rants are pretty epic um it's youtube.com slash ocp communications uh, i mentioned our patreon and facebook page earlier okay so i'd also like to um mention um thomas hatfield who actually designed the logo for our podcast the one that you're looking at right now the pretty little uh you uh, uncovering unexplained mysteries with the the purplish background in the woods pretty awesome um <laughs> he apparently he designed this t-shirt called mad stacks and it's got robert stack i mean just standing epically in front of this fog uh it lo what looks like a um like underneath like this this uh tunnel or bridge or something and it's a badass shirt dude it, i mean it, it's really cool um and you can uh, actually order that from um this site called rage on i don't know i ordered one tonight as soon as he put the uh, link on our page i i ordered me one because i am where i am rocking that shirt i mean it's a big ass print of robert stack um and it's pretty cool so um that is actually on our facebook page um that's another thing that i'll put a link on our facebook page for so you can get that i'm not sponsored by him or anything like that but uh it's it's a cool ass shirt and if you're into unsolved mysteries merch which there's not a whole lot out there um that's that's a fan-made shirt that you can get that's uh, pretty awesome um i am actually thinking and you guys can tell me if you think this is a good idea or not uh, i am really debating uh, and i think i'm leaning more in favor of uh, i am thinking about getting a robert stack tattoo on my uh the top of my um bicep uh, a portrait of him with his trench coat on and the fog and all in the background uh really thinking about doing that so let me know if you think that'll be a good idea with all that being said that's the end of the podcast hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week and uh be safe out there in nighty night okay no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna end that way um have a good night and be safe and um Fuck it. Bye.